Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. It's a Monday, so that means we're going to be opening up the mailbag. But first, we've got some headlines. And first, gentlemen, how are we doing? Uh, is your how's your Super Bowl Monday? Are we are we outraged about anything that we saw? Are we are we fists clenched? Are we exhausted? Are we bloated? Did we eat too much? Did we drink too much? How are we feeling? Mm. My Super Bowl Monday is more of a mock draft Monday because I literally woke up this morning and got to work on my very first mock draft for 2020. So I'm done. 2019 NFL season, that's in the rear view. Done. It's time to move on to the future and see what's coming next. I forgot you're a mock draft guy. Yeah. How many many mocks are we going to get throughout the cycle? I do one every two weeks. So however many weeks there are until the draft divided by two. Okay, <laughs> who's who? You, who you got uh, going number two right now? Uh, Chase, Chase Young? Young. Yeah, the you got, I you mean, I, I going number five. No, I, I did the same thing that we did in our mock draft on here a couple weeks ago when when we were asked by one of our listeners to be the first three picks. I am the Lions. I had the Lions trade their third number three pick to the Raiders for twelve and nineteen in a future. Second or third round, I can't remember, but the Raiders trade up to draft Tua. Mm. Wow. Okay. All right. Um. I'm, yeah. My, I'm, my 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 Super Bowl hangover wasn't too bad. Yeah. Four I, four beer a four beer kind of night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> evenly evenly paced out across the game. <laughs> right. Four yeah. beers over four hours, just kind of, you know, I didn't go. I didn't go balls of the wall. It was a good night. The, uh, you know, like I, I didn't, we didn't have like the, the guy who was going to be like breaking out their iPhone to get their own official time for the national anthem on the over under, you know, didn't, didn't have anybody forcing the squares down anyone's throats, but I could tell by the way that a uh, few individuals were sweating at the party that we had some action out there. So, you know, so the, the, um, I, I didn't have any action out there. I, sh- I showed up and, uh, that my watch part, my, my I was watching it with some friends. Um, included in that was was my dentist. Oh yes, and, and the dentist had some action on tails. He had a good theory on this. He won tails on the he, he the, is a commemorative coin, right? And so his theory is that because the public was heavy on heads, that there was some some Vegas shenanigans that they could put together to weight the the coin because it is commemorative it's not like a government issued coin to weight it towards tails so his his um his conspiracy conspiracy theory helped him win the, the tails bet uh but he didn't the thing i was the 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 easiest money in the whole deal apparently there was plus odds on whether or not there would be butt cleavage and during the halftime show and I when and this was before the halftime show hit, and I said, "You're telling me you didn't take that? Like that is easy money. That is the that is the safest play of the night." And sure enough, like it was like butt cleavage every 
like every 30 <laughs> seconds for a good 10 minutes. But see, what so, counts is butt cleavage. Like, well, I mean, if, if they're, <laughs> whatever the whatever the definition is, like there is any definition of it would have hit. Like, I feel like butt cleavage would be like you see like some top of the butt crack, like a plumber's crack. I feel like that is butt cleavage. And I don't know if we saw that. No, well, apparently, it, I mean, apparently it hit. I mean, the the, the it paid out. So I, I was butt cleavage from my from in my mind's eye was was uh, was was a, a southern southern section butt cleavage as opposed to the northern half. <laughs> so all I know is my my mind's eye very much enjoyed the halftime show. So Tom, how did it feel to uh, cash your Patrick Mahomes rushing yards under oh, on him kneeling fifteen yards in the final that drive? Was, that was as oh, sweet wow, that's as amazing. it could be because he was he was at like thirty eight yards rushing, and I, I was like, okay, well there goes that because like they were allowed they they were trying to let him scramble, they wanted him scrambling. But then on the kneel downs in the final seconds, he was running back like five yards yeah. and kneeling. So he lost 10 yards on the kneel downs to go back to 29. I had it at 29 and a half. It was, it was beautiful. But I want to talk to the dentist real quick. Don't bet the coin toss, you idiot. He won. He won. <laughs> they juice both sides. It's a 50-50 prop. And they're literally taking 10% off each side. So there's no conspiracy for them to weigh the coin. They make money no matter what. Listen, uh, I guess you didn't hear the explanation. He apparently has some serious uh, intel. He's he's got a serious something if he's actually betting the coin toss. (laughs) Oh, man. Well... We we appreciate the dentist and all of his degenerate tendencies. They keep the people coming back every weekend on the uh, right. on the Cover Three College Football Podcast. A few, That's right. A yeah. few headlines before we dive on into your questions. Uh, the first one is uh, a, this in the like current college football landscape. Uh, not all rules are the same and it's something that happens um and there's a few other professional sports like this where you've got multiple governing bodies and so remember like the ncaa doesn't have anything to do with the college football playoff but the ncaa has um you know jurisdiction over certain aspects of the entire athletic departments of everybody in the power five conferences and across college football now each of the power five conferences and each conference not just power five each conference can have its own rules uh, to be able to put in place uh, for th- for competition, for you know how the the coaching staffs are made up, how scheduling is done. There there's a lot of uh, different cooks in the kitchen when it comes to determining uh, how the the machinations of the college football ma- uh, organism are going to go. Now it gets interesting because of transfer rules because. There are, you know, ways that each individual conference, especially as, um, you know, a, a continued spotlight and conversation on transfers has been going on, you can make uh, different adjustments to these. And a lot of it has to do with uh, whether you're allowed to move within the conference, uh, what kind of, um, you know, transfer rules there are for transferring out of the conference, when do you have to sit a year. Well, in a, in a, in a move that's pretty interesting, the Big Ten has proposed legislation. This is according to our own Dennis Dodd. Uh, the Big Ten quietly proposed legislation last year that would allow players in every sport 
to transfer once during their career without sitting out a year of residence in their new institution. If adopted, the legislation would mark one of the biggest competitive changes in the history of college sports. So the Big Ten, like this proposal is just among the Big Ten athletic directors right now. But obviously that could... Uh, that could change if other conferences decide that they want to step in and uh, and adopt this as well. So it is creating a freedom of movement for players in that you can go and you won't have to sit out a season, but you can only do it once. So uh, I guess I guess Barton, I'll, I'll let you get first crack at this. As as you see the Big Ten stepping up to try, and and this was officially proposed last year. It was reported this week that. Where where do you see this going, and uh, is it something that you sense other schools would be able to get behind? I think so. I mean, I, I think the coaches would like to just sort of have the um, – just like the, more consistency. I think, I mean, just sort of like everyone just wants to play by the same rules. Whatever the rules are, they can deal with it. But just let's just all play by the same ones. And I think the, the waivers and the – I mean, the – the waiver process has sort of been the new clown show of the transfer situation is like, you never know. Like it's, there's not consistency and it's, and it's, and Frank, look, it's hard for the NCAA to, to really rule over this stuff. I mean, where do you draw the line on a family health issue? Like, you know, is it, is, is an uncle matter? Does, does a cousin matter? Does a grandma matter if she's 500 miles away or, just 250 miles away. Like what, I mean, where is, where, where do you draw? So like, I think just creating a clearer picture, I think would, would be welcomed by coaches and look at the big, if the big 10 got it done and did this, then you got to imagine just, it would trickle down or up or whatever to every other conference because no one wants to be at that disadvantage from a recruiting perspective. And I think it would make a lot of sense uh, to just, I mean, it's sort of silly that the people have to sit out anyways. Um, and I think if there's a one-time transfer opportunity, then it, I mean, it just further pushes us towards where we already are in the transfer portal uh, without the, the sort of murky, cloudy uh, inconsistency that goes along with the process. Yeah, no, it, it's just a common sense move. And you're right. Cause if the big 10 does implement it, then, everybody else will shortly follow because then the Big Ten has an advantage landing transfers because all transfers would know, well, well, if I don't want to sit out, I could just go to the Big Ten and play right away. And the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 and everybody won't you know, be cool with having that. So I think that as far as the rule, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Things are way too complicated as they are in the NCAA and the schools have just made things far more difficult on themselves because of this transfer situation than they ever had to because let's not forget for most sports in college there's no rule about sitting out for a year if you transfer like if if you're a volleyball player and you transfer from alabama to wherever you know whether it's like clemson or ohio state wherever you would be transferring you don't have to sit out a year you just get to go it's not a big deal and it shouldn't be a big deal 
in football or men's basketball or women's basketball and the other bigger revenue sports where there are the rules that require you to sit out the year. So it's common sense. It'll make life easier on the players transferring. It'll make life easier on the coaches because they don't have to sit there and wait for, you know, the NCAA to rule and for lawsuits to be filed. And it'll just be easier on the NCAA because they don't have to deal with any of it. You transfer. Okay. We just check a box next to your name that says you transferred once. And now if you transfer again, well, we know you have to sit out a year. Boom. It's all done. It's all settled. It's not like any of these rules have ever stopped players from transferring. So just pass it and let's get on with our lives. Well, and and I think that that's probably uh, one of the best points here because uh, right now in 20 NCAA sports, you you can go one time and play right away. And it is only in five sports right now where athletes are required to sit for a season when transferring. It's men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, hockey, and football. So the one-time transfer rule proposed by the Big Ten would essentially take those sports and put them in the same bucket as all of these other sports. I mean, it's... uh, Yeah. I'm not going to say that it is 100% no-nonsense because in the... um, well, I guess I guess in the like discussion of the transfer culture, it's been interesting to learn that when it comes to the waiver um, application, as coaches are looking for consistency, we've also started to hear that the cases as they are presented to the NCAA, there's no consistency with there, and so it's it's a little bit difficult as you know not every single high-profile student-athlete is going to be able to lawyer up with Tom Mars and be able to have the the best in the business present their case for eligibility. And so a lot of times there are cases that I think get flagged by coaches and fans as, you know, this is inconsistent. Why are you ruling this with this player, but you're not ruling this with that player? Well, it's, it's all confusing, uh, even for those who are having to make the decisions because there's not a lot of consistency and, uh, in the way that the waivers are being turned in. Yeah. And I think there's also inconsistency too, where you're seeing bigger name, higher profile players at more key positions get the waivers a lot more often than other players. Like Justin Fields got a waiver. Tate Martell got his waiver. And meanwhile, just, just you know, like if I look at Illinois, they had Luke Ford, who was a highly rated tight end from, you know, rural Illinois, who originally committed to Georgia, spent a year at Georgia in Athens, decided he wanted to transfer back home because his grandfather was sick. He wanted to be closer to home and closer to his grandfather. And the NCAA didn't give him the waiver because they used that arbitrary there's you know the school's not within a hundred miles of your hometown rule but there are no division one schools within a hundred miles of his hometown so it's like you see that kind of inconsistency and just weird reasoning it's it's like a it's it's like pass interference except with transfers there's there's no consistency from case to case it's just kind of a well do you have a lawyer and are you more important than this or not and then okay we'll do it or we won't and so just have a uniform rule for every single player who wants to do it. It's This doesn't mean that every single player in the world is going to suddenly transfer. It just means that if a player wants to transfer, it's suddenly got a hell of a lot easier. And, oh, my God, now they're just like every single other kid in college. Mm. Um, 
sticking with some of the big picture stuff within college football and college athletics. Uh, recently introduced in Congress was a congressional a bill introduced to establish the Congressional Advisory Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics to quote investigate the relationship between institutions of higher education and intercollegiate athletic programs. Now the the bill and the uh, goals behind establishing this commission are not, you know, it, it, there are so many different prongs to this. And, and one of them is uh, to sort of increase oversight in terms of sexual assault and the way that schools and the NCAA uh, handle sexual assault allegations with athletes. And so getting some, some federal oversight into, you know, into that category is getting as much support and bipartisan support as the way that we've seen a lot of bipartisan support between behind some of the state's bills that are going to be uh, potentially allowing players to profit off their name in, image and likeness. So it's, it, it's something that's getting a little bit of momentum, but there's a, another part of this, uh, this bill and sort of the goals of this commission, which was again reported by Dennis Dodd is that uh, they, there are, those that are interested, including House Representative Donna Shalala, the former president, yeah, the former university president at Miami, is very concerned about coaches' salaries and that one of the goals uh, of this commission would be potentially to to institute some, some I guess, like federal um, – you know, guidelines or, or federal laws that potentially would be curbing uh, or capping or limiting some of the salaries for college football coaches. Anybody, uh, anybody real passionate about the free market right now? Want to, <laughs> want to get on that soapbox? Uh, I will just say that if you are going to limit coaches salaries and I, I don't have a problem if you decide that's what you want to do, but then you're going to have to start paying the players because the only reason the coaches' salaries are rising is because income and revenue is rising, and that money has to go somewhere, and you can only build so many facilities. So you see coaches getting the majority of that money, or at least the you know that's where a lot of the money is going. So if you're going to do it, cool. But I don't think that this is going to happen as much as I think that this is a, uh, a very – you know, like here, here's one way to look at it. Well-intentioned, well maybe? Yeah, but I don't want to get too political. But these days, when you see bipartisan agreement, it's a it's a pretty easy public relations score. Mm -hmm. So whether it gets passed or not, it makes you look good. And there's an election coming up in a few months, boys. Well, look, this is, I I I just can't believe people are this stupid. I just can't believe that people that are supposed to be smart are actually this stupid. They like they. Yeah, you know how you if you're worried about coaches getting paid too much. I mean, it's the it's it's a it's just a different way of saying what Tom just said. But I mean, if if you allow the free market to pay players, I'm not even talking about university. I'm talking about the free market outside of the university. If you allow those guys to collect money uh, in in whatever way they can, sponsorship deals or whatever, then th that would naturally cap the you know the, the, that would slow the inflation of coaches' salaries just based on wherever that money's coming from, all the different sources of revenue that drive those coaches' salaries would be uh, watered down by those sources of revenue paying the players directly instead of just getting their weight room waterfall sponsored or whatever. So, like, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm sure the same people that are trying to cap the coaches' salaries are trying to cap the players' salaries too. And so maybe those people need to stop being so upset about all the people that have an opportunity to be make a lot of money. Just deal, you know, worry about yourself. Let these people live. I think that what they need to do, uh, and I think this was, uh, if I think this was a quote in the story, but uh, if not, it's it's been in in some more of Dennis Dodge reporting on similar issues. But uh, they've, I think that schools, schools who are worried about coaches' salaries and and worried about how they're spiraling out of controls, I, I think that you you could do a better job with these contracts because Hell yeah. like there's yes. there like that's that to me is like if we want to actually talk about the issue of coaches salaries don't lump it in as a like another like stated goal within this big as i i agree with you tom public relations sort of flavored bill if you actually want to get into it well then like figure out a way to get the athletic directors that are negotiating these coaches contracts and all get together and and let's start working on these buyouts. Like let's let's start working on the way these things are written because you don't have to go very far, even in the sport of football, to to look at the way that contracts are written and ways that you can limit your exposure as a university so that you aren't having to have these massive buyouts and, and all of this uh you know this this weight on your budget that includes having to, you know, having to pay out all these bad decisions. And then like, that's the other part of this. You could, you could also make smarter hires, right? Like okay, the, the coaches salaries uh, are, are spiraling out of control because uh, like coaches salaries are spiraling out of control because most coaches aren't worth what they're getting paid. And like, it's one of those things where I think Nick Saban is underpaid, even though he's one of the most highly paid coaches in all of college football. And then there's other coaches that are making near Nick Saban money and not even delivering near Nick Saban results. So negotiate better contracts. Yeah. And you know how many times I've ever heard a recruit say, well, I would go there, um, but his buyout is really low and his contract's running out and I'm just really concerned about the stability of that coach in that program. Uh, oh, but no, no, wait a minute. I, I heard that there was a, uh, he got a new contract and now his buyout's now I'm really in. high. <laughs> and now I'm in. No, that's not like these kids, like this always under this veil of like, we got to like, you know, stabilize his job security for recruiting purposes, man, these kids care about what graphic you send them and whether or not their host is cute. Like they don't care about what your contract says. So it's, it's a ridiculous excuse by agents to get these contracts. And it's just Jimmy Sexton winning the war, man. It's just the AD is just losing the, the war to Jimmy Sexton every you day. Know what, you know what schools need to do? What? Hire their own agents. Ooh. Now we're talking. Hey, don't, don't be an AD sitting down with Jimmy Sexton negotiating a contract. Have somebody that you hire specifically for this to sit down on the other end of the table and negotiate with Jimmy Sexton. Don't do it yourself. You will save your school a lot of money. You might save your job in the long run, too. Yeah, stop getting played by power agents who are, mm-hmm. who are spinning 10 plates at once and working one school against another. <laughs> like that's I'm, No. I'm not trying to challenge LeBron to one-on-one. <laughs> Don't go against Jimmy Sexton. 
Yeah. You call in Jimmy Sexton LeBron? I yeah, guess of his industry. Agents go. Yeah. Okay. Go. <laughs> All right. Nice. I like it. A uh, little bit of on the field news before we uh, we get to the mailbag. Chase Bryce has announced that he will be joining Duke. Uh, he was a graduate transfer, of course, former Clemson quarterback. Led the Tigers to a win against Syracuse in tr- in a game that Trevor Lawrence was knocked out of shortly after Kelly Bryant left the program. A uh, lot of. And we talked about it a little bit when he announced his transfer. Everybody in that building loves him. A lot, a lot of people that are talking about what a great guy he is, and he's got a good, he's got a good pedigree. You know, he was a four-year starter at a, you know, Georgia high school powerhouse at Grayson. You know, won a state championship. So, yep, there's a lot that's there. But uh, I, I mean, Chase, uh, listen, Duke does not have a T. Higgins and Justin Ross, right? Like life, life is much better when you've uh, when you've got Clemson's wide receivers as a quarterback. What's the what's the what's the expectation for Chase Bryce at Duke? Uh, how do we feel about the 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 players around him? Now, other than the other than the acknowledgement that it's not T. Higgins and Justin Ross, it was an acknowledgement, but it was also meant to uh, draw a big warning sign to uh, some positions of need and concern on the Duke offense skill position. I'm not sure that's where I would have gone if I was Chase Bryce. Let's put it that way. I mean, here's my question. Are we convinced that Chase Bryce is better than Quentin Harris? Or no, I know he was a senior this year, wasn't he? Yeah. Okay. I was was, was thinking Harris was a junior. Oh, well, but no, the answer is no. So is he going to elevate Duke from what I mean he might be better than Quentin Harris but I'm not convinced he's better than Quentin Harris so what is he going to do to elevate Duke that Quentin Harris couldn't do I don't know I don't know Calhoun Calhoun had a nice season for a freshman receiver so that could be nice but he's also more of a you know slot kind of short intermediate route guy it's not like a big play threat Uh, I, I mean I think that you could do worse than Duke but I don't think Chase Bryce to Duke suddenly does anything for me where I'm looking at Duke in the coastal saying, Hey, this is, this is now a team that's, you know, we're gonna have to keep an eye on them. I just still feel like this is like a team that's fighting for six and six, seven and five. So he'll, he will have two years remaining and he's immediately eligible. So in terms of depth, you've got a a fiery competitor with a good pedigree and a lot of great experience from being a part of that Clemson program. It is, it is a value add to the quarterback room for David Cutcliffe, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. I I think this might have been a good move for Chase Bryce. I mean, he's getting his undergraduate degree from Clemson in May. Maybe he's just trying to go ahead and, and uh, get some classes knocked out at the Fuqua Business School. He'll be he'll have himself a job in like the Clemson front office in a little bit, right? Like this is just a good grad school opportunity up in Durham. That's what it, that's what it smells like to me as well. It's like ah, uh, you know what? I don't have to. Don't have to move too far. I mean, there are other. If he was really, if this was like a pure football decision, there, there seems like there were some other opportunities out there. Yeah, I think. It, I, yeah, I think. I think this might have been uh, not just a pure football decision. Coming up on the other side, your questions and our answers, including some narratives with some of the game's biggest coaches. Next. There's nothing. Like this. Oh, what a goal! The UEFA 
the Champions League is back at its new home on CBS All Access. Sensational! Stream every match of the world's most prestigious tournament live. That's incredible! The UEFA Champions League group stage kicks off Tuesday on CBS All Access. There's nothing like it. Yo, it's two-time Super Bowl champion Bryant McFadden, also known as BMAC. Mike check, one, two, one, two. And that's Patrick Peterson, a fellow cornerback, my cousin, and now my co-host on the new podcast, All Things Covered, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. This season, Pat will go from the football field on Sundays to the studio on Mondays to bring you the perspective of an active player at the top of his game. And the name says it all. Sure, we'll catch up with Pat P on how he and the Cardinals are faring. But we'll also talk about other sports, our personal interests, and social issues. Then we'll cover even more with the prominent guests each week. With 17 years of NFL cornerback experience between the two of us, we think you'll enjoy our coverage skills. So download and subscribe now to get weekly episodes released first thing Tuesday morning. All Things Covered is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. All right, let's dig in here because there's nothing better than uh, fans that are upset about narratives about their coaches and their programs. All right, I love I love narrative anger. <laughs> uh, this this question from uh, nickname eyes sixty nine. Not to sound like a typical OSU, nice. and that's Ohio State. Not to sound like a typical OSU fan where the world is out to get us. What first of all, thank you, no name eyes sixty nine. For, for just nice. fully dialing into the Ohio State fan headspace where the world is always out to get you. Not to sound like a typical OSU fan where the world is out to get us, but why does the media treat Lincoln Riley like a genius who descended from the football heavens and Ryan Day is just a good coach? OU went 11 and 12 11 and 2 and 15 and 16 and Riley has gone 12 and 2 each year but is obviously no closer to a championship. Ryan Day fired every defensive coach but one and has made terrific hires while having an undefeated season and recruiting much better than OU. Will Day ever be able to escape the stigma that he rode the coach tails of Urban? So <laughs> First of all, I, I, I appreciate the self-awareness to understand that he was being like super fan guy in the question, but I'll give the question it's a, a, a fair response to here. Like a, I, I, I think that it's, to me it's very clear what happened here. It, it's that Ryan Day was, was he was sort of billed as this whiz kid. But no, like no, no one in the college football community, other than like if you literally talk to coaches that coached with him or players that played for him or went back to his BC days in like 2013 or whatever, like there was no way to really look at it from the outside looking in and, and be like this this Ryan Day guy is a stud. Now you you heard all the the positive reviews from him. You could understand that it meant something that Ohio State wanted to elevate him, but Ryan Day was was an unknown until this year, really. I mean, yes, last year he was, you know, it was it was impressive the strides Ohio State made, and he had a good run in the three games he was the head coach. But like, there was still all this like, is this Urban's offense? Is it Ryan Day's offense? Like, what's the deal here? And so I think now, obviously, we 
kind of know what we're looking at. But when you think of Lincoln Riley, Lincoln Riley was the was the offensive coordinator kind of savior that came to Oklahoma for a defensive minded coach and was the offense. And Oklahoma was fifty first in the country in yards per play in twenty thirteen. Uh, East Carolina that same year where Lincoln Riley was was forty fourth. The following year in twenty fourteen, Riley came in as the offensive coordinator. They were twenty fourth. East Carolina was twenty second. I'm sorry, that was so. No, yeah, East Carolina was twenty second the year before Riley came. Oklahoma was twenty fourth. Twenty thirteen, twenty fifteen. Oklahoma was 13th in Riley's first year. ECU dropped to 61st. 2016, Riley's second year, they were second. And then as the head coach, they were first. 2017, 2018, 2019. So, like, it was very clear that Riley was the difference in the offense. It was very clear that Riley owned the offense because it wasn't Mike Sto- um, Bob Stoops. And it, the offense kept getting better every year. Whereas Ryan Day, there was still, like, is it Ryan's offense? Is it Urban Meyer's offense? Now he, he's finally got the reins, and I think we all understand how good he is, but he came from the NFL. Before that, he's at BC. You know, it's like there was just unknown about Ryan Day. Yeah, I mean, Lincoln Riley, you, you went over it. Like, let's look at the difference. Oklahoma in 2014 was scoring 36 points a game. Okay, they bring in Riley. First year, jumps to 43.5. 2016, 43.9. 2017, he becomes head coach, 45. 2018, 48. This year, 42. You look at Ohio State, there wasn't a significant drop-off before day. They had very good offenses. In 2014, the year they won the national title, they averaged 45 points per game. Then it was 36 the next year after Tom Herman left, his first year gone. 2016, back up to 40. 2017, 41. 2018, here comes Ryan Day, 42. 2019, 47. Very big step forward. But there is also, like you said, nobody knows if it's Day yet or if it's still Urban Meyer. Lincoln Riley has been at Oklahoma for three years now. He's been to the college football playoff all three years. His first year as the head coach, he helped turn Baker Mayfield into the Heisman Trophy winner and the first pick in the draft. The very next year with a brand new quarterback in Kyler Murray, he turned him into the Heisman Trophy winner and the first pick in the draft. Year three, another transfer quarterback that he did not mold, that he did not teach growing up. Jalen Hurts comes in, doesn't turn him into the Heisman Trophy winner, but he made him a Heisman finalist. Lincoln Riley has been doing it for a lot longer. Like I knew who Lincoln Riley was when he was at East Carolina. And I think most, you know, people who paid attention to college football knew who he was when Bob Stoops hired him at Oklahoma to be his offensive coordinator. That was one of those moves where everybody was like, Oh, that's, that's a smart move. People knew who he was. And I think Ryan day is still coming. Like you said, from that spot where he wasn't well known beforehand, he's obviously a lot better known now. And if he keeps doing what he's doing, then yeah, he's going to be in that same place. But I think that to compare Ryan Day to Lincoln Riley after Ryan Day has only been in charge for one season compared to what Riley's done in three seasons as a head coach is a bit naive. And, and I'll say this too, like um, in Ryan Day's defense, like one thing that struck me is yards per play. Again, I mean, that's just one statistic, but you could, you could um, throw a lot of others in there, but yards per play is typically the first one I look at. And, I was really surprised when I realized that in 2016, which is the year before Ryan Day showed up, y'all know what Ohio State was ranked offensively in yards per play? Uh, 47. 40-something, yeah. Like, that's 
to think about what Ohio State is now, and like I, I think that is probably. I mean, the next year they're tenth. They were 11th in 2018. They are 7th this year. But 47th in 2016 on an 11-2 team that finished 6th in the country, Like that does kind of speak to the way maybe the things that things were going previously and the way they're headed now. And so I think like over time, Ryan Day is going to you know, probably become right there with Lincoln Riley. But there's, you know, we're, we're still ultimately getting our exposure to Ryan Day. Link. Yeah, and I, I think as far as like offensive play calling, Ryan Day's great. The question I have with Ryan Day is, will he be able to maintain what Urban, you know, built at Ohio State? That's that's going to be the key to me. The whole recruiting and all that kind of stuff, because in a in a way, Ohio State recruits itself, but to recruit at the level that Urban Meyer did and where Ohio State is recruiting now, it takes more than just Ohio State recruiting itself. So for me. That's my question about Ryan Day. It's not about his ability to design and scheme offenses and call plays. I've already seen enough to know he's pretty damn good at that. Yeah, it 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 might not matter. Like, not to dismiss the question, but who cares? Because I think a lot of the Lincoln-Riley narrative just comes from back-to-back number one picks where the NFL people went crazy. When everybody studying tape for the NFL draft went bananas over these offenses that Lincoln Riley's drawing up for Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, and they loved it. And that that coming from the NFL and coming from pros and football in general, like like that's just going to seep its way all the way down through the entire game. Like who who cares if if he's got some some good reputation or if he's treated quote like a genius who descended from the football heavens? What you need to be worried about with Ryan Day is the big picture stuff. It's like running the Fortune 500 company that is. Uh, Ohio State and like you said he's we we know that he is a positive um he is he's a positive impact on an Ohio State team that while it was you know winning double digit games almost every single year was not uh, an offensive juggernaut by any means and we've seen from the recruiting trail he is going after wide receivers he is going after tons of wide receivers we saw Garrett Wilson this year and he's going to try to just have whole rooms full of Garrett Wilson's just ridiculous wide receiver talent stretch the field push the ball down the field like there will be a Ryan Day uh, imprint on this Ohio State program that will be offensively um, flavored but Ohio State success under Ryan Day and whether or not they'll win a championship is probably big picture stuff and him being able to handle that early on in his coaching career as much as anything. But I, and just to be to be clear, like so far, he's he's passing all those tests. Yeah, I mean, thirteen and zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we'll see what happens in the in the long haul. But to this point, I mean, he's shown he's capable of all of it. We'll we'll see if 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 that continues. All right, uh, this one came in in December. Uh, username Poncho's dad. As a Georgia fan, just like the three of us, since this is a Georgia fan podcast. Go dogs. Uh, as a Georgia fan, I am frustrated by the blind credence given to Dan Mullen's in-game coaching ability with quotes around in-game, particularly because the same is usually not said about Kirby Smart. It seems like most in the media talk about Florida catching up with Georgia and assume that Dan and Florida can compete on a similar level as Kirby and Georgia with lesser talent. Kirby's team is won and covered in games where both have been the head coaches. Is it a lazy narrative? I think Mullins. I, th- I think the Mullins narrative as a as a good. I don't know about in game coaching, but at least being able to scheme up a good offense that goes back to Mississippi State. So there is proof there. 
But I thought he did that this year too. You thought he did a pretty he, good he, job offensively? Yeah. yeah I thought yeah. he did. I mean, he adapted his, his system, his scheme to what he had. He switched. You know, They were trying to make Felipe Franks more of a runner. Felipe Franks gets hurt. They have to really totally switch to what Kyle Trask can be, which is sort of a quick game, almost like West Coast offense type of look. And and sort of leaning on the run game, leaning on, like it's. I, I think I was impressed with the way the offense adapted to the different skill sets that that they had, and and so I I think that that held true this year too. Why why are fans so mad about what the narratives are around their coaches these days? Also, oh God. Also, how like what is what's what's what is the is is that a, like how prevalent is that Kirby smart narrative that he's like a bad in-game coach well I think that the uh some fake punts and whatnot and in title games and SEC championship games have really driven home and then some you know that South Carolina loss there were some questionable decisions made in that one I, I think that there are plenty of examples of Kirby not making the greatest decisions at times in games so I think that to an extent a lot of it is deserved, and I don't think covering twice against Florida shows that Kirby Smart is a better quote-unquote in-game coach than Dan Mullen as much as it shows that Georgia's just a much better team than Florida talent-wise. And I think that's something that the three of us have talked about. The great media narrative about Florida catching Georgia, I think we talked in the last mailbag how we all can't wait until Georgia's got the second-best odds to win the division next year so we could hammer the Georgia. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't I, I have a hard time dissecting how to how to compare like media like like narrative on coaching ability in games for the for like for those two like I'm just like I don't know where to go with this. Well, I mean, like, like I think that we should be able to take fans and. Uh, and and give them the experience that you had when you were injured, where they actually have to listen to the chaos on the uh, headset. Um, <laughs> like see if they, heard, see see if they can make decisions with all that going on. I heard that in the XFL, where you're going to be able to hear the uh, communication from coach to player, and that communication won't ever cut off. Like like you. There is no cut off at 15 seconds. Like you, the coach will be able to communicate with the player through out the play if they want to, and the XFL is going to give like going to give the viewer access to some of that. So it's basically just think, like NASCAR, right? Which could be <laughs> awesome. So like, so like the coach, the offensive coordinator, whoever can yell like you know 17's open. Right, right. Like I don't like that. Hit the dig. I, I'm fine with them. Yeah, I'm fine with them communicating like until the snap, but I I do not like the coach being able to talk to the player during the play. Could be cool. I don't know, man. That sounds sounds like it's going to lead to a lot of interceptions. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for a playbook that they learned in like 9 hours before the game. Like, damn, dude, you're overloading them. Just just let them play football. Just let them get out there and play. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to hit, we had a couple questions tied back to Texas. A lot of Texas interest from our listenership this year. So we want to make sure that y'all uh, y'all get to hear some horns talk. Uh, first question from Sir Debo. Can the Longhorns turn it around next year? And are the Longhorns being realistic about who they are? 
OU fans always bring up they can't be a dominant program and the Mac era was just an anomaly. I think they can and should be, I think they can and should be a national championship contender every year. What do you guys think? I don't have any, I don't I don't know any reason other than just some No, I mean I just I don't know any reason why Texas can't be like do the Oklahoma people that say that Texas is is being unrealistic about who they are have like what is the per, what is the reason why, like they have the resources, they have the you know geographical footprint, they have the facilities, they have I mean what why can't Texas be like why would Mac Brown era be an outlier for Texas? I don't understand that. Uh, yeah, so I, I I definitely think they can, um, but I don't. I so <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know that they're there yet. I feel like if Oklahoma can do it, then absolutely Texas should be able to do it. I think that maybe the problem is too many damn cooks in the kitchen, as far as you know, people at Texas fighting for power and people wanting to be in charge. And I think that <laughs> Mac Brown, being the ultimate politician that he is, and able to keep factions from warring with inside his own you know inside his own program and inside his own department was a perfect coach for texas to be able to do it but i i mean yeah you need the right leader but you've got everything you need to be a good national title contending program i don't know if you can compete for one every year but you should at the very minimum be able to compete for a big 12 title every year. And if you're competing for a big 12 title, then you're competing for a playoff spot. And then yes, you would technically be a national championship contender. So no, I, I think OU fans, when the Sir Debo, when OU fans tell you that you can't be a dominant program and Mac was an anomaly, what they're doing is called trolling you. <laughs> and you just and, got got. <laughs> <laughs> you've been got son. It just, that, that's what your rivals are going to do. I mean, they're just going to talk crap. And you just, right now, you don't have much choice other than to take it. Now, so I just realized what our off-season mailbag is going to be. It's just going to be, like, people venting their frustration yes. about what their, like, rival fan buddy said at the water cooler about how they can't do this or can't do that. And so they, they need us to, to debunk those myths. I, Maybe I don't we know. should do like a therapist session. <laughs> I mean, I've 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 gotten talking. I've talked reckless on this podcast before about just being in a wait and see mood for Texas with the only with the only argument in my uh, logical quiver being just that it's I don't know it hadn't, it hadn't happened. Texas just has not been that successful on its own in the modern era and like since the creation of the Big Twelve. The, it has been Oklahoma's conference. And there's like that other thing where if you really are going to try and have the mindset that you can and should be a national championship contender every single year, well, yes, then by technicality, Oklahoma, three straight playoff appearances, yeah, they're a national championship contender. But if we're having that, that next conversation that's like, okay, now you get in the room with the national championship contenders, where do you stack up there? Texas has two moments of leveling up before they reach the, in my opinion, before they reach the status that I think Sir Debo wants. First, they've got to get to that point where they're winning Big 12 championships with the same kind of frequency and regularity as Oklahoma. And then you start to measure yourself, not just against Oklahoma, but against uh, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and uh, and the rest of the big dogs. Yeah, it, there's a level of consistency, I think, that Texas has just had a real difficult time finding. So where do you guys where is y'all's confidence level on their ability to level up this year? Not high. Not super high. I looked at their depth chart and just from just the names on that depth chart, like 
it was it was not as inspiring as I I don't know if I expected to be inspired by it, but it didn't get me it didn't get me all gassed up for for Texas necessarily. I mean, the thing is, if Texas were to have a very quick turnaround, the like the story would be like uh, well, I mean, that would be pretty iconic for Texas for the iconic Texas quarterback, but it would be like a bunch of tryhards, right? It would be for the most part players playing above their head. I guess, but I mean, they have recruited well, so it's not as if they're they're trotting out a bunch of Joe walk-ons. I mean, so but they they just but those guys just aren't necessarily. I don't know. I mean, Devin Duvernay's gone. Um, I mean, they they are they're brought they're bringing in the number one running back in the country in the class of twenty twenty. Um, Jordan Whittington, who was a I think he's a five star guy last year, was injured all year this year, and you know maybe he he can show up and provide some punch. But I mean, obviously defensively in the front seven, like there was, there's not a whole lot to be inspired by. They're still talented on the back end, but they, that that's sort of, they need to prove it back there too. I just, I don't know where you, I mean, other than Sam Ellinger, I don't know where you just look at Texas's roster and you just feeling really good about what's going on. Well, maybe it's on the sideline because Johnny, Timmy, Bobby Smith, uh, asked, what are the odds this year Mike Yursich can be for Sam Ellinger what Joe Brady was for Joe Burrow? Not great. 10 to 1. 10 to uh, 1. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's it's not a knock on Yursich or, or Ellinger. I mean, I did do some research for this question. It's just what happened with LSU this year is not suddenly the kind of thing that you're going to be able to just see. It's not like you just find a coach, bring him in, and wow, everything suddenly magically works. What we saw was LSU was a very talented team that had a very talented quarterback with a lot of very talented weapons around him get a scheme that made a lot more sense for what they needed to do, and it worked. Now, if I, I looked up the numbers. Ellinger this year, if you look at his 2019 and compare it to who Burrow was in 2018, there's some similarities. I mean, mm. Ellinger, his on-target rate was 74%, and he averaged 4.51 air yards per throw. Burrow in 2018 had a lower on-target rate at 70.7%, while averaging 4.52 air yards per throw. So as far as that is concerned, that kind of accuracy we talk about with Burrow Ellinger is not really as far off. And in fact, in some areas, he was a little bit better than Burrow was in 2018. So I can't dismiss it from there. It's just, I don't think that Texas has the same kind of talent on offense that LSU had. And I think that goes a very long way towards explaining Burrow's ascendance to being just an absolute supernova in 2019, just as much as Joe Brady bringing in modern offensive concepts. Cause it's not like, I mean, we talked about this before. It's not like Joe Brady reinvented a new offense that nobody had ever seen before. He just brought in some, you know, more modernized RPO kind of spread concepts that LSU had never used. And they had just ridiculous talent to run in it. And it worked like it does for Oklahoma and it does for Ohio state. and It does for a whole bunch of other programs. So that's, it can work. It's just, I think that if you're trying to talk yourself into, well, your sitch coming in is going to turn Sam Ellinger into a Heisman Trophy winner, then you're 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 not being reasonable. It's not to say he can't improve the Texas offense, and I do. Well, I don't think Texas is going to be 
competing for the Big 12 next year. I do think it's going to be better next year than it was this year. It's just there's still a pretty big gap between it and Oklahoma. But I think you're going to see an improved Sam Ellinger, and I think maybe his draft stock improves, but you're not going to see like a Joe Burrow rise. Yeah, a couple things. First of all, you already have an iconic quarterback in Sam Ellinger. How much better do you need him to be? I mean, the guy's the guy's uh, he's iconic. He is, uh, and so I don't want to get you too greedy. Secondly, you have seen Sam Ellinger now for three years. Joe Burrow was like just getting his feet wet. I mean, Sam Ellinger kind of is what he is at this point. Like I don't know how much of a dramatic jump you can see. And finally, to Tom's point, I, I actually looked just sort of out of curiosity. Uh, you know, who where is going to be like who who could be the Joe Burrow of this year. And the problem with looking for the Joe Burrow this year is you're not really looking for Joe Burrow. Like you're, you're actually looking for Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson and Clyde Edwards Elaire. Like who's got this really potent set of skill players that just need to be unlocked. And uh, that that's, and I, I don't know that that Texas is that right now. They've got, again, some good young ones that, that, if they live up to their recruiting rankings, are, are going to be pretty good. But I think I, I feel a little less um, confidence in that crew than what LSU had last year. And this is a very, very specific follow-up final Texas question. But if if you're going to come specific and it's going to it's going to fit into the show, I'll give you a shout out. Mitzi asks, with National Signing Day coming, which 2020 QB starts after Sam leaves Texas? Is it Hudson Card? Or was that a typo? No, uh, Hudson Card. Yeah, Hudson, Hudson Card or Jaquindon yeah. Jackson. Will Jackson switch positions? Well, I think in most, in a lot of, in a lot of places, I would view Jaquindon Jackson as a guy that could end up in a different position. Uh, I think at Texas, because, and I'll, we'll see if the offense sort of changes, but like because Tom Herman has had a lot of success with these sort of tough athletic quarterbacks. I, I, to me, Jaquindon Jackson could be like a Heisman trophy winner if, if it, if it hits right. Um, so I, I don't, it's, it's a really interesting, both guys are top 100 players. It's a really interesting pair. Um, even Hudson card was a really good wide receiver. Um, uh, his sophomore year before he you know, took over as starting quarterback. Uh, so I, I think both are really good. I think Jaquinn and Jackson probably has a higher ceiling. He's he's just an absolute stud. Um, and one of my initial like player comps for him was um, uh, what was the what was the safety hybrid linebacker guy uh, Shaq Shaq Thompson at Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually compared him to Shaq Thompson, but. Uh, I think he's now I compare him more to like um, like a Dak Prescott almost. Mm. So Dak Prescott, he was like coming out of uh, Louisiana, LSU. I think at one point he even recruited him as like a fullback or something. And he was a little bit raw, but obviously kind of a tough, really productive quarterback. Goes to Mississippi State, rest is history. I think that, that could be a little bit of the Jaquin and Jackson comp at the, at the next level. Ooh. I have never seen either player play a single snap in their high school careers. So I can't really speak to that as far as which one's the better quarterback. But I will say this, as far as name basis, 
both are significant quarterback <laughs> name upgrades to Sam Ellinger. What? Oh, yeah. First, Hudson Card, first of all, sounds like a movie star quarterback, all right? And Jaquindon Jackson's just a fun name to say. So these are two very good quarterback names. And plus, Jaquindon Jackson, if we want, maybe we could shorten it to Jack Jackson. That's awesome. Uh, is, I mean, yeah. Texas is in very good hands going forward. That's Gu- all I got to say. Gus Johnson calling the uh, Red River rivalry. Jaquindon Jackson. Jackson. <laughs> uh, all right, turning our attention to the Canes. Here we go. First, uh, let's go first about Ed Reed. Uh, he was named Chief of Staff by Manny Diaz and username A34ADF98. I think that must have been the confirmation code for this person's flight. So now we can go <laughs> to Miami. Ed Reed is probably my favorite player of all time, but I don't see how this Chief of Staff position plays out well in the end. How can Manny Diaz do his job with such a legendary figure looming over him. Do you guys think Ed Reed is the right piece that can turn the program around? To me, this feels so much like Sydney, the Sydney low days at NC State, where fans are so hungry for a return to the glory days of yesteryear that they throw a former player into the mix just for the heck of it. The Sydney low pull is like a strange way to go isn't it? i mean yeah because Sidney Lowe was the head coach he wasn't the chief of staff yeah. he was the head men's basketball coach now i do i guess what you're trying to say is because Sidney Lowe won a national championship at nc state and the that nc state was trying to you know tap into whatever sort of mystique might have been left there but i don't think chief of staff number one i don't think chief of staff is is at all what head coach is and number two i mean is isn't Manny Diaz kind of used to being a big deal in Miami already? I believe he was the mayor's son. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he's I, that What the hell does chief of staff even mean? I think it means whatever they want it to mean. I think it means I mean, yeah. just co- come in here and be Ed Reed and 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 tell us how to do this. Like I, I think it's I, I think it's first of all, I, I think Ed Reed is a is not the type of guy that's just going to go in there and like. Oh, cash no. a paycheck. No, <laughs> like, if you hired Ed Reed to do a job, Ed Reed's going to do the damn job. Yeah. Secondly, look, it's it's it's. I think Manny Diaz understands what you know how to get Miami fixed. I think he has some good big picture perspective. Obviously, he's. I, I'm not saying he's a good head coach yet because he hasn't proven to be a good coach yet. But I, I think that if Look, we we thought his press conference conveyed the right message in his in his introduction last year. Um, so I think there are some he has some some good perspective on this. But I think when you're trying to change a culture and get those guys, and like the part of the narrative that uh, you know you hear about Miami this past year was just like it wasn't it wasn't a group of guys that like loved the grind. And if you're trying to change the culture, having Ed Reed in that building, a Hall of Famer who was the alpha on a team full of alphas, and for him to be the guy that is hammering that message home on a daily basis, like you're going to you have a hard time convincing me that's a bad thing. That's fair. I'm, I, I like it. 
I just don't, I, I didn't think that chief of like, I, I thought that him coming around was like, um, you know, it's going to be like Steve Spurrier being the ambassador to the Florida Gators football program. Like when the HBO cameras are there, he might walk in and steal the chalkboard from Dan Mullen. Right. But, <laughs> but, 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 I, I, but like Ed, like Ed Reed is, is I, I just think Ed Reed is more, is, 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 is not just he, like here to, for something to do. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know Ed Reed, but he, he was worked with the Under Armour All American game. He's done some, like some camp stuff. And, and anytime you see him engaging with young players, it's, it's not like eye roll type of stuff, which you get, which, which I've, I've rolled my eyes from a lot of quote greats and they're sort of, what, you know how they quote coach, and it's not like Ed Reed is like that's a guy I'd, I'd want to sit down with if I'm a player. I'd want to go get out the practice field and work with. Like I, I think Ed Reed has a lot to give, and not only just in terms of just his knowledge, but just in terms of his his attitude to the work on a daily basis. I just think he's the type of guy that will. Uh, I'm not going to act like a. Ch- chief of staff is someone we should be hyping as like the turning point in the program because I don't know but I also think that like like it is really hard for me to to, to think of any way having Ed Reed in that building isn't going to be a good thing I will go on the record right now and say that if Miami turns around I'm giving all the credit to Ed Reed and I'm going to say that Every program needs a chief of staff. Look, Deion Sanders out here saying that he's interviewed for three jobs this past year and he's going to be a head college football coach next year. Uh, to me, Ed Reed, and, and after this year, will be more qualified than Deion Sanders to be a head coach. Ooh, and that. You think Deion will try to manage a baseball team at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there might be some open positions. If we keep we keep finding out about this cheating... We'll have to fire some more managers, and all of a sudden, Deion Sanders is going to be coaching a coaching a football team and managing a baseball team. It's going to be managing the Braves all these years later. Oh, beautiful. Uh, also, Miami-related, this question from Canes, but he put a money sign for the S. Shout out to Nevin Shapiro. Uh, most Canes fans say that Miami should win the Coastal nine out of ten years based solely on talent level. What should the expectations be for Miami winning a division in a decade? Are Miami fans' expectations way out of line, or can Miami still compete for division slash conference slash national titles in today's landscape of college football? Why can't they? Like what? What? This is just just like the Texas question. Like what's? Uh, I'll say, I, I'll say I they can't. No, and maybe I don't know. Like, 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 like so maybe I need to just like educate me. Like, why, why should Miami not be able to recruit or, or play, compete at the highest level? Miami c- cannot compete for national championships in today's landscape of college football, but it can prepare and work towards being ready for tomorrow's landscape of college football. The distance in program infrastructure and just sort of the way that everything is run 
between Miami and the teams that are where Miami wants to be. Like if Miami is going to reclaim its spot across all of college football, then it probably needs to be recruiting on that national level. It probably needs to be finding quarterbacks that are, are not just serviceable, but the best quarterbacks in the country. And I just, I think that the, the, the talent level argument while like on paper might've been right. Like Miami wasn't overwhelming, uh, every team that it played this year with talent. I mean, it lost to teams that it was much more talented than, but, you know, com- compare Miami to, you know, our beloved Georgia Bulldogs and Miami is, is deeply inferior in terms of talent. So the winning the coastal division, yes, like it is reasonable expectation for Miami to go into every single season and take aim at the coastal division title and a spot in the ACC championship game and say, this, this is where we've set the bar. I think that's totally fair. And like, so if you want to throw in an ACC championship on top of that, like, yeah, I I think that's fine. But if you're going to be a realistic, if you're going to take a realistic look at where Miami football is going into the season, then I do think you've got to understand that they were far behind the curve in terms of upgrading some of their facilities, that the the way that all of the, the football program is spread out is not advantageous towards sort of building a massive community around the football program for support purposes. And then like on top of that, it's, I mean, it's a small school, small school down in Coral Gables. I, I think those are all disadvantages when you're competing to try and be one of the premier top-shelf programs in college football. Yeah. I think I just, Chip covered it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I just I wonder what the um, – because I think of the things you said there – and look, I'm not saying that like this year's Miami team should be able to have ACC championship expectations. I mean, obviously, they have a ways to go to build things up. Um but my, my point is, like, what is keeping from a from a big picture perspective, like, you know, everyone's rosters cut down to zero. Everyone has to build their roster from scratch. Like, what's keeping Miami from being able to compete at the highest level? And and I say that without knowing the answer to it. But I wonder, like, I, I don't like the facilities thing to me is I I, I I don't perceive that as being like that big of a deal. I mean, USC is, has never had the best facilities in the Pac-12 and has always dominated that conference from a recruiting standpoint. Like Miami has a, a a vibe and a mystique to it that should be able to compensate for any facility um, uh, discrepancy. I, I I wonder another point you threw in there. Like I just wonder if they have the support staff, the infrastructure, the 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 budget that maybe some of these schools that they have to compete against do. And that, that would be, cause I mean, that's kind of what's biting USC right now is they've always had been able to make up for that, that lack of like staffing um, with just the USC brand, And that's not cutting it right now. So I just wonder what Miami's situation is on, on just support staff and infrastructure and are they devoting the right money? Are they getting enough money? Uh, because I think the other stuff to me, can be can, can can be glossed over because it is. I mean, it's still the U. Tom, no, I, I just I think that like yes, there's a high ceiling, but I don't think it's fair to compare it to like a Texas because, like you said earlier, when you know we, if Texas can, why can't Miami do it? Well, 
Texas is the giant public school flagship school of the state of Texas, whereas Miami is not the flagship school of Florida. There's Florida, there's Florida State, there's every single other college football program that's coming down there to recruit. I think that if they got the right coach in there who could not only identify the top talent, but keep them in Miami or keep them coming to Miami, then yes, they could win. They've shown that they can. If you look at their history, I mean, they've got national titles for a lot's sake. So they, they've shown they can. I just think that it's a lot more difficult to do it at a small private school, even if you are Miami, because if we look at a lot of the history of success that they had at that time, that was before recruiting became super national and that they were kind of, you know, South Florida, always a hotbed of talent. And they were just kind of able to like, literally, you know, like coaches always say, we're going to draw this circle around here and nobody's getting our guys. Well, Miami was able to do it and keep it. They, they can't do that anymore. And well, I think also, that really God, Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but, but no, I, also, I think look at like look at the coaches that Miami's had. So they had Randy Shannon, who is who hasn't been a head coach since, and I you know maybe that's a indictment on someone other than Randy Shannon. But he's not. I mean, it's not like he's like out there killing it anywhere. Uh, he's he's a defensive coordinator and doing okay. But he's it's it's not that wasn't uh, a, a head coach that's otherwise killed it somewhere else. Al Golden, he's the I think he's a linebackers coach for the Bengals right now or something. Um, Mark Rick was a guy that was not getting Georgia a place that probably has more opportunity to be successful where it needed to be. And so should we be surprised that he underachieved Manny Diaz so far? Not so good, but you know, maybe, maybe the best is yet to come for Manny Diaz, I guess, you know, Bush Davis had success elsewhere after Miami. Dennis Erickson had success elsewhere after Miami. Jimmy Johnson had success elsewhere after Miami. Like mm. they had a, a stretch of really good coaches there for a while. So I just wonder if, hey, maybe Manny Diaz is the guy. But I just wonder if you put uh, a, a a really good coach there, if Miami, if you if the ceiling isn't still what it once was. I, I just wonder if we're just we've just missed. We just had a window here. Where Miami hadn't had the right guy at the head as the head coach since 2002 or whatever. That could be. That probably connects uh, to the infrastructure and support staff, right? Because you've got to have a coach who's going to understand how to set it up. You've got to yeah. have a coach who's got to understand. I mean, that's I, I mentioned it before, but that's because he mentions it all the time. But it was Dabo Sweeney sitting down with the university president and being like, "All right." If you want to go for this, if you really want to do this, here here are the things we need. And this is the kind of commitment. And like commitment is not just money and it's not even just people, but it's just a mindset of prioritizing that probably goes right in the face of everything that former Miami president Donna Shalala is trying to introduce with her bill in Congress where she's trying to limit <laughs> coaching salaries. Yeah. Right. You, you want to know why Miami can't do it? Cause your former university president wants to pay coaches on the cheap. That's why if you're willing to cut some checks to be able to build out, I mean, we've seen it when Alabama shows up, or like when when LSU when they show up to a building for a game, I mean the there's so much so so many team gear just staffers everywhere, just a lot of people caring and investing their time 
and their own energies into trying to get that football team successful. Uh, so that that might be where it starts. All right. Anything? Uh, let me, since National Signing Day is coming up this weekend, I had this one floating around. Questions actually from November, but uh, I wanted to, and this, hey, works right there with Miami. Do city teams have a competitive disadvantage in recruiting um, compared to otherwise, uh, I guess not rural, but like the, the metro or city teams, is it a competitive disadvantage in recruiting compared to a good old college town? I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that's what, uh, I, when I initially saw this question, I didn't really understand it. Like, what, I guess that's what they're getting at is if it's just a college town and the whole town is about the university, then there's some charm that to that. Perceived. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, maybe that helps, but who, who are the, who are the urban cities or I'm sorry, city universities, whatever you want to call it. I mean, Louisville. obviously, but like USC right. has had his, has had his days. Miami has had its days. Um, you know, Georgia tech hadn't really tried in a while. At least they haven't tried to be. They've, they've tried to be good, but not great. Hey, man, they were. Uh, Paul Johnson was scoring touchdowns against Dan Mullen in the Orange Bowl not that long ago. That's what I'm saying. Like they, yeah. but they, they're so they they're good, but it's not like they were trying to capitalize on their 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 oh, local sure, you know, talent base. Um, I I I don't think it's a disadvantage. No, I don't think it's a disadvantage. I think it's probably a case by case basis. Like, cause, I mean, not all college towns are created equally. That is some very suck. true. <laughs> some are great and some suck. Mm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's not a, a, a competitive disadvantage in recruiting. I just think it might be a competitive disadvantage because if you got a lot to do and it ain't football, well, that's very different than what's going on in Norman, Oklahoma. So, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just so like start. So like Mississippi state, I mean, they should, why aren't they competing for national titles every year? Well, I tell you but, what, they are making the most of what they got. <laughs> they can't, <laughs> they can't get national titles, but, uh, yeah. I mean the, like, so I was, when the question came in, I first went back to the old Metro athletic conference, which had like Cincinnati, Louisville, Memphis, you know, there, there are ways certainly that you can, uh, that that you can I, tap into I mean, that as an advantage. If in a way, like the AAC now is a very metropolitan conference. Yeah, because it's got, got all Cincinnati, the Houston, UCF, in Orlando, Temple in Philly, South Florida's in Tampa, Memphis, Navy, well, Navy not really, but SMU's in Dallas, Tulane's in New Orleans, Houston's in Houston. It's it's a city conference for the most part. So I guess that's where uh, the East Carolina Pirates have an advantage, baby. Market mm-hmm. inefficiency. Come to Greenville. Let's do it. Same. And I guess, I mean, I would say stores, but Barton, you, you have Connecticut experience. I mean, isn't like every town in Connecticut kind of just the same? You know, I mean, I was obviously New Haven was my town. And at some point in my career, it was, it was conveyed to me that per capita, Connecticut is like the wealthiest state in the country. Uh-huh. That was That was shocking news to me. Based on my Connecticut experiences, uh, it doesn't. It didn't. My so maybe I didn't experience the the rich part of town enough. Um, but 
New Haven is is less than is less than uh, well, uh, buzzle, bustling with like wealthy folk. You didn't have uh, a like a, a roommate or a suite mate whose butler came to pick you up and take you back to the compound just outside of town. <laughs> New Haven, New Haven. I heard uh, I heard gunshots at night. So our first our first uh, night there. Uh, one of my teammates got, um, I don't know. These sto- actually, <laughs> these stories are a little bit like, I don't know, like they're like off the record, probably stories. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not like leave them for podcast consumption. But I, I can't fall asleep without at least hearing two gunshots. <laughs> <laughs> that is Tom Fernelli. Uh, that is Barton Simmons. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons, at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We've got national signing day cover- coverage coming up on Wednesday. Uh, you know, All through the day, you can find it at 24-7 Sports. You can find it at CBS Sports HQ, a special signing day wrap-up show with Barton, 4.30 to 5 o'clock Eastern time. And, uh, and I'm sure that there will be plenty of that action. Coaches will be in the mix, uh, and the race for number one team in the country is on. Check out 247sports.com uh, for all of your national signing day needs gentlemen thank you very much thank you Yo, it's two-time Super Bowl champion, Bryant McFadden, also known as B-Mac. Mike, check, one, two, one, two. And that's Patrick Peterson, a fellow cornerback, my cousin, and now my co-host on the new podcast, All Things Covered, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. This season, Pat will go from the football field on Sundays to the studio on Mondays to bring you the perspective of an active player at the top of his game. And the name says it all. Sure, we'll catch up with Pat P on how he and the Cardinals are faring. But we'll also talk about other sports, our personal interests, and social issues. Then we'll cover even more with a prominent guest each week. With 17 years of NFL cornerback experience between the two of us, we think you'll enjoy our coverage skills. So download and subscribe now to get weekly episodes released first thing Tuesday morning. All Things Covered is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found.